candy canes. Now, there's some, there's some church traditions where at halftime, actually halftime through the sermon, the Wilhelmina peppermints come out. Right? This is a new, this will last even longer than a Wilhelmina peppermint. It gives the preacher even more time. Uh, it's actually a good, not a bad practice, is it, to give the children a, a little peppermint during the sermon? What's that? The adults too, yes. We've been, we've been working through um, titles, names, nicknames, sobriquets of the Lord Jesus in his second coming as we celebrate the first coming, uh, this Advent season and Christmas. We, we've sung tremendously and wonderful, beautiful gifts have been given this morning and it truly is moving. We come to the third in our series. It's actually the fourth in our passage. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm going to begin reading actually from Matthew chapter 2. We're jumping ahead a little bit in the Christmas season. I know we usually reserve this one for a bit later. This is the Magi. And then I'm going to jump back to Revelation 19 and verse 11 and read these two paragraphs together. So we'll start in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and then we'll skip to Revelation 19, verse 11. Matthew chapter 2. Now after this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his heads are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, thus far it's the word of the Lord. Uh, as we have reflected on these names, we faithful and true. He, John, in his gospel opening, writes that, that Jesus came full of grace and truth. He is the, the testimony, the perfect testimony of God to us. In, then we have this, the name which he knows only to himself, and it, it highlights 
his transcendence, high and almighty, lifted up, so powerful, we can't even grasp who and what he is. But then he is called the Word of God, and, and in that is the creation and the incarnation, God with us. He dwelt among us. So he is the living Word and reveals God to us. And now we come to King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation 19 and verse 16. Jesus is declared the King at the beginning of his life and at the end of his first time on earth. You remember when Pilate is uh, crucifying Jesus and he has written on a placard uh, the charge, the indictment, the verdict, uh, a guilty charge on the cross and on the placard it says in multiple languages, King of the Jews, the King of the Jews. But he's also acknowledged, as we read in Matthew chapter 2, the king even at the beginning. Who is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? A ruler will shepherd my people. His first coming was indeed one of, of humility. It ends on the cross. It ends with that verdict, guilty. But the second advent, as we read in Revelation 19, he comes with glory. He comes with honor. He comes in victory. So how, how do we unpack this King of Kings and Lord of Lords? I just want to highlight a few characteristics. It's mostly pretty obvious, I think, for, for us. But the, the first one I want to highlight is this aspect of deity. He is God. It's the same type of language that's used of God in the Old Testament. It goes way back to God revealing himself to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. You see the similar rhythm, the similar kind of construction. God of gods, Lord of lords. Psalm 136 and verse 3 picks up the same rhythm. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And again, Daniel. Uh, when Daniel is, is working with Kim, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, emperor, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar makes a, a confession, a profession. I don't know whether it's of saving faith, but he makes a profession acknowledging the true God. In Daniel 2.47, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. So this language, King of kings, Lord of lords, is pointing back to God revealing himself and indeed Jesus is God. God in the flesh. A magnificent title. Well, obviously it, it means also royalty. We could pick that up from the term king and ruler, right? But notice, as we read in verse 12 of Revelation 19, he has manifold diadem upon his head. Manifold diadem. Now, when, when we see the apocalyptic art that's out there, it gets a little goofy, and then trying to put, you know, jewels and, and 
uh, golden crowns upon, upon the head. But a diadem uh, wasn't, wasn't quite that jewel-encrusted golden type of crown. A diadem was uh, typically a bit softer, uh, still valuable and precious uh, of these fine uh, materials, but it, it was more of a band in which uh, the conqueror would put multiple uh, diadem upon his head. If you conquered a king, then you would take his diadem and add it to your collection. Conquer another king, add it to your collection, and you'd have multiple diadems. Now, what's going on in Revelation earlier in, in this narrative, if we'd had the time to read the whole thing, uh, the dragon, that is Satan, has seven diadem. And the, the beast uh, that comes following uh, the, the evil empire, we might say, uh, he has ten diadem. You know, they're, they're numbers of completion. They're numbers of wholeness. But then comes King Jesus, and it's way more than seven. It's like manifold diadem. He is the real ruler, the true ruler, not some demonic usurper, not some pretender. Deity, true royalty. This is our God. This is our Savior, our King. There is this aspect of superiority. It goes in that, that redundancy, right? This repetition. King of kings, Lord of lords. Like he's, he's the one. It's a superlative. He's the greatest, the highest, the mightiest, the high king of heaven. Now, someone did some unique, unique uh, so we say numerology. In... In alphabets, you, you assign a number to a letter, like the letter A is the first in the alphabet, so we'll assign it a number one. And on you can go with the alphabet. And one very creative scholar took this title, King of Kings, which is written in our New Testament in Greek language, well, he, he transported it into Aramaic, which would have been the, the language that they would speak during, you know, family time, uh, business time. It was the language of the day in Jesus' time, Aramaic. And if you, you add up the, the letters, supposedly, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, you end up with seven, seven, seven. Now, we ought to be careful with this numbers kind of thing, but it did make it into a really high-powered scholarly theological journal. And they published it. It, it, that, it takes more effort to get something like that published in a theological journal than it does in the Christian bookstore. But just saying. So just be careful. But I find that quite fascinating. I find that fascinating. And if there's a, a case for this, it just supports what we already know. Jesus is greater ultimately, infinitely, eternally greater, superior. Well, there is also a, a universality to this. And again, not, not rocket science, but, but 
worthy, worthy of bringing out. Remember, many diadems. He's conquered king after king after king, nation after nation after nation. They, they belong to him. They're subservient to him, to King Jesus. The whole universe, the Lord rules. The entire universe, the Lord rules. They're, they're like the beast, like the dragon, many usurpers, many phonies, many poor stewards that have been delegated a response of authority in this world, in this life. But it won't be made all completely right, and the politics won't be done right until Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. The entire universe, every nation, belongs to Him. Indeed, as we go through Revelation 4, 5, 7, and on it goes, we see this cosmic worship, this worship from every tribe and language and people and tongue and nation. He has a people reserved for Himself from the nations of the world. There's a universality to it. Indeed, the Apostle Paul highlights this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. Forever and ever. Above all rule, authority, power, dominion. Well, that's comforting for us to know that indeed all the political leaders someday will be accountable. But it's for every one of us as well. Again, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day will come and it's been well noted in the, in, by the Bible students that it includes everyone. Every knee will bow, voluntarily or involuntarily. Every knee will bow. Indeed, as we stop to think about his superiority, his grandeur, his majesty, his might, the creator of this universe, the creator of every individual person conceived. I suspect it will be voluntary, whether you really mean it or not. To come into the presence of this King of kings and Lord of lords, the Word of God, the faithful and true witness, the name that is above every name, every creature made by Him. I have to think, will fall down before him. Again, it doesn't mean that every will be, one will be indeed a, a loyal and a faithful servant of the kingdom or of the king. Those who trust him, those who rest in him, will be saved. There is an exclusivity. Yes, every nation, every knee will bow, but there's an exclusivity 
to this. In, in, in Revelation, we, we have this kind of pungent, this pugilistic, this uh, apologetic uh, of Jesus Christ. As John presents the revelation of who Jesus is, he's, he's using language that of that day, the first, first century, was used in emperor worship, had been used throughout the centuries by various emperors, king of kings. Well, if we would read the book of Daniel or perhaps the book of Ezra and even glimpses in Esther, which we've just been through this fall, we see these words, king of kings, used of the kings of Babylon. Zeus of the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods was called king of kings. Now, we've already gone way back to Deuteronomy 10 and know God revealed himself as God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords. Others have stolen the term and used it over the centuries, over the millennia, claiming to be what they are not. But come revelation and the appearing of Jesus Christ, the only one who is worthy, the exclusive Lamb of God who is worthy to bear the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. It belongs exclusively to Him. He alone is worthy. And that's what we sing and praise this morning in our carols and our songs. Now tonight, we're going to pull up into Revelation chapter 5 and unpack that just a little bit. You can read Revelation 5 and see the Lamb that is worthy. Well, let me just, just summarize. John's in heaven before the throne room of God, and there's a scroll with seals upon it. And, and the mighty angel voice cries out, Who is worthy to open the seals of the scroll? No one. There is no one found worthy. It's the title deed of the universe. Ownership and mastery of the world. There's no one worthy to open the scroll. And John breaks down weeping. Weeping. And the mighty angel voice says, John, weep no more. Behold, the Lamb that was slain at the right hand of God the Father. He's worthy. Worthy to receive power and glory and honor and wisdom and wealth and riches. Again, terms used of the emperor. Usurped by the emperor. Accolations that belong to Jesus alone. So if, if you are to know God, the only way is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is there an exclusivity to His kingdom, but there is an exclusivity into the entrance of His kingdom. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you too will be saved. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which they must be saved. This Jesus, 
Well, let's, let's take these attributes and, and kind of summarize them together. Right in our text, Revelation 19 and verse 15, it says that he'll rule with a rod of iron. Shepherds usually rule with a wooden staff. He will come and rule with a rod of iron, with all authority and with all power and might. It says also in verse 15 that he will come treading the grapes of wrath, we might say. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I don't suppose we dwell on that reality of the coming of Jesus Christ in this particular season too often, do we? We think of him in the manger, but not in the winepress of wrath. But he's coming. Yes, the first was of humility to bring you the offer and the invitation of entrance into his kingdom, to yield to him, to bow the knee to him, submit to him as your king and as your Lord. He has given you this opportunity and this time. He has given generations of men and women and boys and girls to confess Jesus as Lord, King of kings. But he will come again. And the second advent, the second coming, will be to sort out the members of his kingdom and those that would not. He comes with a robe of crimson, a robe, verse 13 and verse 16, a robe dipped in blood. Now, we can get technical in all this, and, but let's just say this. He, in verse 13, he's already coming, and his robe is already dipped in blood. He hasn't even gotten to the winepress of wrath yet. He hasn't even tread the grapes of wrath yet, and his robe is already crimson red. For he has shed his own blood. And it is on the basis of the shedding of his own blood for the nations that he can come and legitimately judge the nations. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that the saints are made pure. Though your sins are red as crimson, though they be like scarlet, they shall be like wool, they shall be like snow. Pure and forgiven. Is Jesus in the red robe, but did you remember as we read through, the, the saints that follow him are dressed in white, washed in the blood of the Lamb. What wonderful chemistry. No, he comes worthy. He comes the second time. And he will not be in the manger, but in the winepress. He'll not be clothed in swaddling cloths, but in a robe of crimson. And he will not be bearing the cross, but bearing the rod of iron. This is our God, our King, and our Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes 
the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. God, that world is comprised of us, individuals who now have the opportunity not just to sing to the Savior of the world, but to submit to him. This Christmas Advent season, might, might we receive the gift of your grace in Jesus, the forgiveness of sin, fellowship with you, and the fruitfulness of a Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.